The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to Squawk Box. It's Wednesday morning. These are your headlines. Christine Lagarde lands the nomination to head the ECB as EU leaders finally reach an agreement on the bloc's top jobs. Oil prices, well, they're trying to consolidate after OPEC Plus agrees to extend output cuts until March 2020. The Secretary General of the grouping, Mohamed Bakindo, tells CNBC Russia has become an important ally. There is now uh, a very strong bond of relationship, working relationship between us and, and, and Russia. Uh, and this goes right up to the top, uh, to the leadership. The S&P 500 sees its seventh record close of the year. But the optimism doesn't carry through to Asia, where trade worries and weak Chinese data weigh on equity markets. Tesla's stock surges in after-hours trade as the electric car maker smashes production and delivery records in the second quarter. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box on this Wednesday morning. Wall Street saw the rally continue yesterday, as you can see beside me. And for those podcast listeners, it was a sea of green. The Nasdaq up about 0.2% yesterday. The S&P and the Dow up uh, nearly a third of a percentage point apiece. Now, in terms of what led the gains, we had tech see a fresh record close yesterday. The Nasdaq there seeing its fifth straight positive session. The Dow, its third positive session in the row. And in the headlines there, I mentioned the S&P, the seventh, uh, the seventh record close of 2019. So the rally continues, obviously, on the back of that G20 summit over the weekend. Uh, yesterday, we had some fresh comments from Peter Navarro come through. He told CNBC that talks have restarted, but he did exert uh, a little bit of caution when it comes to them coming to a conclusion anytime soon. Nevertheless, he repeated the message that this is a bullish signal. The, this, is, this is a bullish signal around the market outlook. So perhaps that helping sentiment a little bit. Uh, Fed, the, the President Trump also announced the names of two new nominations to fill vacant spots on the Fed. So moving forward a, a little bit on that front, investors seem to have shrugged off the U.S., turning their attention to the EU when it comes to tariffs. We had that story developing yesterday. But overall, investors uh, seeming to be uh, on the positive side as we head into the 4th of July holiday tomorrow. So on that note, just a reminder, major U.S. exchanges will close early today and then be closed tomorrow for the 4th of July holiday. Let's take a look at U.S. Treasury yields. We saw some big moves there. The U.S. Uh, Treasury yield for the 10-year is now below the 2% mark. Uh, as you can see here, 1.956%. So moving lower here uh, across the curve, we have seen yields move lower from the 2-year all the way to the 30-year. Shifting uh, gears. Let's take a look at oil markets. We, of course, had the OPEC Plus meeting take place yesterday. The OPEC meeting take place on Monday. The, we saw the agreement of supply cuts. Uh, and we did see yesterday a big pullback in the oil price. Now, in, in the latest trade, we are seeing a little bit of a uh, a little bit of gains come back into the fold. WTI trading about a third of a percentage point higher. Brent trading uh, about the same. We are seeing global growth concerns continue to weigh on the demand outlook. So uh, that is factoring in, uh, certainly factoring 
entered into trade yesterday in the oil price, but a little bit of a bounce now we are seeing in the latest trade. Let's take a look at Asian markets. Uh, yesterday we did see a little bit more of a tempered trading relative to the moves we saw on Wall Street. Now we are seeing a pullback on uh, in the Asian region. The Shanghai Composite down 0.7%, Hang Seng down about uh, two tenths of a percent, and the Nikkei 225 down about eight tenths of a percent. Now we had some fresh data come out of China this time on the services front, uh, and the Kaishin Services PMI fell to 52 in June. That's the lowest since February. So still in growth territory, uh, but it, that was a pullback uh, from what we saw in the previous month. Now, finally, let's take a look at European opening calls. We had the big breakthrough when it comes to nominations for those top jobs from EU leaders in Brussels yesterday after marathon talks. So we'll see how investors react to those appointments, uh, in particular the appointments uh, for the ECB and the European Commission. Uh, in terms of the moves, looks like we're in for a muted start to trade here in Europe. Uh, all single-digit moves at the open, except for the FTSE MIB, which is looking at a 15-point gain at the open. Steve? Excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Juliana. Right. European leaders have agreed on a package of nominations for the bloc's most important roles following days, weeks of negotiations. IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde, who's neither an economist or central banker, uh, was put forward to head the European Central Bank, whilst the German Defence Minister Ursula von der Leyen uh, was nominated for president of the European Commission. Elsewhere, Belgian Prime Minister Charles Michel was uh, selected as European Council president and Spain's Josep Borrell as EU foreign policy chief. We've still nominated Silvia Amaro as our correspondent in Brussels. Um, you are the Spitzen Kandidaten, the only one still standing. Uh, but tell me, uh, a, we should all rejoice that these two very intelligent, smart, erudite women who have had the pleasure to meet on many occasions uh, look like they've landed the top roles. But are they going to change the needle on anything? Is European policy going to go forward in a different manner? Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Well, there's a lot to get through here in, in Brussels after all of the decisions that happened here last evening. Let's break down some of the appointments, though, to make it easier for our audience. We have Christine Lagarde uh, expected to be the next president of the European Central Bank. She has been, as you mentioned, managing director of the International Monetary Fund. And she is highly regarded by the 28 heads of state. The, however, some analysts, though, have indeed raised questions about her qualifications because, as you mentioned, she has never been a central bank governor. She does not have a background in economics. She, in fact, studied law. However, I have to say as well that when it comes to Christine Lagarde, she was a former finance minister of a conservative government in France. And so yesterday I asked some of the leaders here in Brussels whether that puts the, independ the independence of the ECB at risk. Let's take a listen. I have known Madame Lagarde for many years and I am absolutely sure that she will be a very independent president of the European Central Bank. I know Christine Lagarde as uh, the boss of the IMF. And I know her as a tough lady, as somebody who knows what she wants, who is very clear on giving directions when you come to her to get a loan, uh, very tough on conditions. So I would not like to be that European country which needs to go to the ECB asking for favors. 
When it comes to the appointment of Christine Lagarde, well, that still needs to go through some procedural steps at the EU level, but the expectation is that all of them will give the green light to her appointment. When it comes to the European Commission, the institution that you see behind me, the 28 heads of, of state chose uh, Ursula von der Leyen, I should say, she is a, she has been German uh, defense minister. She was born in Brussels. She has a lot of experience at the EU level. However, there's a big question mark whether her appointment is going to get approved by the European Parliament. The lawmakers there are going to vote on her appointment in a couple of days' time. And we've heard the Socialist Group as well as the Green Party Group saying that they are not happy with this appointment. So let's see if she if she's going to get a majority there. But ultimately, Steve, the bottom line is that there were four presidencies up for grabs at the EU level and two of them went to women. And so in that context, the 28 heads of state managed to achieve their initial aim, which was to guarantee a 50-50 gender balance. Oh, well, at least they got that right. Look, I'm all for it. You know I am. Anyone who knows me in his office knows that I'm all for uh, gender balance and all kinds of balances as well. But are these people going to be effective policy makers? Let's face it, there is a whole failure at the top of British politics and there is a failure at the top of EC politics as well. The likes of Juncker and Tusk uh, and their acolytes have failed ignominiously to broker a deal uh, for one of the most important issues going forward. Now, we can blame the British to a certain degree, but we have to give the Europeans their fair share of blame as well. Are these people going to be better regardless of their sex? Are they going to be better at brokering a deal with the British over Brexit? Well, there's a lot of challenges for the next set of leaders. And when it comes to Brexit, it's more important to look at the Commission because that is the institution that is going to be negotiating with the next UK Prime Minister. And when you look at the remarks that Ursula von der Leyen has made regarding Brexit, you could see that she is supporter, she's a supporter of the Irish backstop. So that's unlikely to change when she becomes president of the institution you see behind me. Um, I have to say as well that yesterday here, the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, said that he expects the next set of leaders to carry on with all the policies, including Brexit. But as you mentioned, we're not short of challenges at the EU level. There's a question of budgetary matters as well. We see that right now between Brussels and Rome. What's going to, what's the, what will the, the next European Commission do about that? And then as well, let's not forget trade relations with the US as well as the relationship with China. So a lot to do in the next five years for the next set of leaders. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. At least there's a bit of clarity on who they're trying to put forward anyway. But does it provide clarity for markets? Vasilios Giannakis is Global Head of FX Strategy at Banca Lombard Odier uh, and joins us now from, oh, I don't know, where do you join us from? Where are you? From Geneva. 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 Oh, lucky. What are you doing out there? <laughs> Uh, well, this is where I'm based. <laughs> All right, I never knew that. Isn't that amazing? Oh, we'll see you around the desk. Vasilius, yeah. lovely to see you. Uh, do you have clarity now Great on European policy making going forward? 
Well, listen, I think that definitely remains to be seen. Uh, you've mentioned a number of things about, uh, for example, Christine Lagarde being a very articulate uh, person, know what she's doing. Obviously, she's acquired a lot of experience, uh, the International Monetary Fund. She's never been a central banker before, so uh, that remains to be seen. I think as far as markets are concerned for the next three, four, uh, potentially six months right now, uh, I think that the number one thing is going to be uh, what the Fed does, and second, what's happening in the background as far as the trade negotiations are concerned. I think right now that we had the top uh, job nominations, uh, I, I don't think that the markets are going to be especially focused. It's going to be the number one priority uh, for the next five to six months or so. I want to come on to the Fed in just a moment, Vasilius, but just on the ECB, the potential appointment of Christine Lagarde. I mean, we know that she, right alongside Mario Draghi, was really at the heart of dealing with the Eurozone debt crisis and dealing with the Greek situation back in 2012. In terms of her likely approach to risk management and the role of monetary policy, do you think that we're going to see a continuation of what we saw from Mario Draghi in the way that she looks at the, the risk picture for Europe and managing it? I think it's it's extremely soon to tell. All I can tell you is that um, the risk management in terms of the debt eurozone debt crisis was pretty much in line with how the IMF deals with these things. So I, did, I don't think that it was uh, so much of a personal thing, but rather within the general IMF mandate and the general uh, IMF uh, framework. Um, uh, and I think uh, you know going forward, um, the message I'm getting from all central banks is that. Uh, they would like to be preemptive. Uh, they wouldn't like to see the bottom of the barrel and then react. And I think, uh, you know, um, uh, whether it's going to be Draghi or Lagarde, I think we're still going to, uh, towards uh, easier policy for quite some time. Vasiliosa, now I want to come on to the Fed. You, you say that's going to be what's most important in terms of uh, market focus over the coming months. Interesting to see that the pricing of Fed cuts wasn't really affected by the G20 outcome, despite the fact that we didn't see an escalation in tensions between the U.S. and China. We know the Fed is closely watching developments on that front. Does it make sense to you that the market hasn't adjusted their rate cut expectations for July? Um, I was, I have to say, I was a bit surprised, but not too much. I was a bit surprised because um, the only positive thing that came out of, of this, well, apart from the fact that we avoided the disaster scenario of total collapse in negotiations, uh, we made some progress on uh, Huawei, which basically uh, was a positive signal. Uh, but um, uh, apparently the market thinks that the right now, and, you know, rightly in my mind, uh, in a sense, the Fed is put into a corner right now by the market. Um, there's been such an aggressive pricing of interest rate cuts that the Fed has to deliver. And the market knows that the Fed has to deliver because if the Fed doesn't deliver, it will risk a major disruption in markets. Now, whether we were going to see five or 10 basis points of repricing here or there, I don't think it's, it's, it's the big uh, uh, question. I think the fact of the matter is that uh, we are erring towards uh, closer uh, to an easing cycle by the Fed, potentially starting in July. And in our view, we're looking over the space of the next six to 12 months between two and four um, uh, rate cuts by the Fed. All right, Vasilios, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but stay with us. We're going to take a quick break as Vasilios Giannakis, global head of FX strategy at Benke Lombard Odier. Well, coming up on the show, President Trump's senior trade advisor says the U.S. doesn't want its allies relying on Huawei technology. More on that when we return.
a CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. The CEO of Huawei says any easing of U.S. restrictions will not, quote, have much impact on the day-to-day business. Uh, in an interview with the Financial Times, Rang Zhengfei said Huawei must adjust to U.S. Tra- China trade tensions, adding that restrictions on U.S. components only help the firm further its own capacity. Now, uh, Elizabeth joins us around the desk. Elizabeth, the uh, one of the big takeaways from the G20 meeting between Trump and Xi was Trump's softening stance toward Huawei. Now it's been a couple of days. There's been uh, some more messaging floating around. Give us an update. What is the latest Trump administration's message when it comes to Huawei as a potential part of a trade deal? A lot of mixed signals when it comes to Huawei's role as part of this bigger U.S.-China deal. We, of course, heard from President Trump over the weekend that they might ease those restrictions on Huawei as part of this entity list that it's on. That entity list prevents Huawei from licensing other U.S. technologies uh, from in the, in the U.S., Meanwhile, yesterday, Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, coming on CNBC and kind of pulling back on some of those concessions. Take a listen to what he said about Huawei. We're going to work closely with our allies around the world to make sure uh, Huawei 5G is not in those countries. But in the meantime, a small amount of low-level chips are going to be sold uh, to keep uh, systems going. uh, And that's that's not a bad thing uh, when it gets us back to the bargaining table with China and with China committing to immediate and significant purchases of agricultural goods. And let's see if they deliver on that. So hawkish Navarro there trying to say that this was part of a deal that the U.S. got concessions in return, but also saying they're going to continue to work to convince allies not to use Huawei with 5G. He didn't say that. Well, yeah, he did say it. He said 5G not in those countries. That is unambiguous. Right. It was a succinct sentence, and I wanted to make sure I heard exactly what Mr. Navarro said. I'm going to work with our allies to ensure that 5G is not in those countries. Yeah. And this is a crucial... So is 5G going to be in the United States with, 5G, with Huawei? With Huawei, we still don't know. We, there is Right now, it's a ban. There's no 5G with Huawei in the United States. Huawei equipment is ex- in his existing mobile networks across the U.S. Still, it's older equipment. This is a really important point, though. Today, as the U.K. rolls out 5G networks here, because Vodafone will start launching 5G in several cities today, and Huawei antennas are part of those equipment. It's paused Huawei in some of the core networks, so those are the sensitive parts of the network. But if you look around at some of those towers, you will see Huawei equipment, and you will see that they How are selling. I can tell if it's Huawei equipment when I look at those towers. It, 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 takes, an, it t- takes a sort of expert A, a, a honed eye. Yeah. Can you tell if it's Huawei equipment? I've been, I've been studying some of the diagrams. You can look I, at a, I, a mast and tell <laughs> if it's Huawei or not, can you? I, I'm not going to promise that. I don't I'm going to show you pictures of three <laughs> masts. Ericsson, 
So I'm going to show you Eric's. I'm going to show you Huawei and, and Ray Cool or something. I don't know something from the 20th century. Yeah, and you, I will, I will be able to point that out. You're amazing. One of the you are really good at this job, job yeah. aren't you? <laughs> Peter, Peter Navarro did mention how yes, yesterday how Ericsson and Nokia could contribute to the rollout of 5G in the U.S. So positioning them to take the place of what Huawei could have done. To your point about you know is Huawei going to feature at all? Peter Navarro suggests that it's going to be a benefit. benefit to, no to these Europeans. They are pushing those two European carriers over a Huawei. A simple question from me. Uh, do the other technologi technology providers provide as good a product as Huawei? Because something that I think you and Karen have looked at a lot is, okay, if it's not Huawei, what is it? And what is the price of that? The, the mobile operators mostly rely, have, have continued to stand by Huawei in part because they do think that its equipment is the best. We've heard that from many of the partners that already do business with the company. Another big part of that, though, is that they already have that infrastructure in place and they don't want to go through the cost that it takes to replace it. Even if there is a comparable competitor from Nokia or from Ericsson, they do, it, it's expensive for them to do those yeah. replacements. And it's not as if the uh, mobile operators are throwing off cash at the moment. I had a quick look at Vodafone share price before uh, after the cut dividend, of course, and they were about 135. They got down to 123. They're now trading 128. But that is a massive multi-year low, incredibly low mm. compared to the three quid plus they were previously. Thank you, thank you. O Mobile Mast expert. <laughs> <laughs> Stick that on your business cards as well. Right, thank you. Sure. See you back later. I am. Lovely. What are you talking about later? We're talking about 5G. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of 5G phones <laughs> to talk about. Actually. Okay. I want to know if it's going to act as a catalyst, whereas 3 and 4G didn't for share prices of mobile phone companies. That's what I really want. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. She's going to do that as well. She can do everything. Uh, China's uh, services activity weakened to a four-month low in June, as uh, Juliana was saying at the wall earlier, according to a Kaishin survey. PMI fell to 52 during the period as export orders dropped for the first time in nine months. The weaker data raises further concerns <laughs> over the Chinese economy as it battles to contain the fallout of prolonged trade tensions with the US. Meanwhile, the Bank of England governor, Mr. Mark Carney, has warned of a, quote, sea change in the global outlook for investors, driven largely by the US-China trade war. Mr. Carney said the market reaction highlights fears that trade tensions could be more, quote, pervasive, persistent and damaging than previously thought. What I've sought to illustrate is that uh, whether current trade tensions shipwreck the global economy or prove to be a tempest in a teacup, they will have important influence on the outlook for growth and inflation in the United Kingdom. That's as close to central bank humor you're going you're gonna to get. Yeah, I'm not laughing. <laughs> uh, right, let's get to Vasilios Giannakis, Global Head of FX Strategy, Banca Lombardodia, who's standing for a very dark board, not the beautiful Lake Geneva behind you, uh, Vasilios. Anyway, more to the point, if everybody is worried about the global economy, which they seem to be now, and everybody starts thinking about an easing bias, is there a race to bottom on one's currency? And can one move one's currency as an extra effect? Not that anyone targets it because they're not allowed to. Uh, is anyone's currency going to get down? Because let's face it, the Europeans want the euro down and the Americans want the dollar down. Right. Uh, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, but then uh, I think you need to ask yourself, the audience needs to ask themselves, which is the central bank that actually has the most leeway uh, to cut interest rates? And in the developed world, that's actually the Fed, uh, which basically tells you that uh, we're coming out of an era where the dollar uh, was enjoying a massive yield advantage versus the G10 peers. But 
it has started being eroded because we've started seeing a massive compression of uh, U.S. versus rest of the world uh, yield spreads, admittedly from, from extreme levels. But I think this is likely to continue because, as you said, it's going to be a race, a yield race to the bottom, to which, however, the distance that the Fed has to cover is much bigger compared to to the other central banks. So I think the net result um, is going to be some further... I mean, during the first half of the year, we've seen uh, just a 1% depreciation in, in the trade-weighted uh, dollar. Our view is that uh, this is uh, going to slightly accelerate as we go into the run-up to the uh, uh, first-rate cut. Um, uh, and uh, we're going to see some further dollar weakness, potentially at a more accelerating rate uh, in the second half of this year. So a race to the bottom for yields, essentially. So in this environment with investors searching for yields, does this mean that EM is going to be an attractive place in your view? Absolutely. Another excellent question. I think, um, uh, you know, uh, w- one of the main themes that we've highlighted for the first half of the year was uh, dollar-yen weakness. Uh, we think this is likely to continue, but at the same time, um, uh, the theme that uh, we are actually promoting uh, for the second half of the year uh, is EMFX uh, uh, strength. We are in an environment right now where core yields are going to be very low, and the signals we're getting is that they're going to remain very low for quite some time. Potentially, with with, with a G20 behind us and the fact that we didn't get the disaster result of a total collapse in negotiations, the growth is going to remain slow, but at least at the margin, the probability of a global recession has receded a bit. So with uh, yields so low, with, uh, 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 in general, EMFX uh, somewhat undervalued, and the probability of a global recession having receded a bit, I think you, you, you're getting into a perfect environment for uh, carry strategies. And I think EMFX, EM local debt are going to benefit uh, quite substantially in the second half of this year. So um, one more question for you. We've mentioned Mr. Carney's uh, attempt at humour and the fact that he's a little bit more downbeat now as well. Um, But if I show you Sterling over the last couple of years as well, and I'm showing the viewers, you know what it is already. 125.83 is where it's currently trading. Bang on the bottom of that two-year trading range. Excellent chart from the gallery there. Thank you. Um, Is the risk asymmetric on Sterling now, given all the other risks we talk about with Brexit, i.e. it's trading towards the bottom of the recent range, positioning on Sterling is pretty weak still, I understand as well. So is the risk asymmetric or do you still fear for the downside? I think for the next uh, two, three months, at least, I think the risk is to the downside. Uh, I think it's not inconceivable that we may gravitate towards 120 uh, in, in cable. And also, we're going to see some meaningful appreciation in, in, in euro sterling. And the reason I'm saying this is that historically, if you go back, the lowest point uh, in the post-referendum period that sterling hit was actually in October 2016. That was when May made that uh, combative and somewhat divisive speech. Um, uh, she said, if you think you're a citizen of the world, you're, um, uh, you're a citizen of nowhere. My point here is that politics in these uh, periods of time, political headlines will play a very important role. And right now we're seeing a race between Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson as to who is going to be the most Brexiteer of them all. And I think this is going to keep on putting uh, pressure on Sterling, irrespective of what the end result is going to be, which is going to be potentially a year from now. I don't know. Nobody really knows. But for the next two, three months, I see uh, quite a significant downside in Sterling. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. 
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.